0: Hello, and welcome to Dialogues in Dermatology. I'm Dr. Todd Schlesinger, your Editor-in-Chief. We have another exciting podcast for you today. We hope that you enjoy. This episode of Dialogues in Dermatology has been sponsored by Almiral.
1: Hi, welcome to Dialogues in Dermatology. Today's episode is sponsored by Almiral. My name is Dr. Jackie Dosal, and I'm coming to you from Skin Associates of South Florida in Coral Gables, Florida. And I'm here today interviewing Dr. Linda Steingold from Henry Ford Hospital in Detroit. And today our topic is managing systemic therapy for acne across the spectrum of disease. Dr. Steingold is professor of dermatology at Henry Ford. She served as the vice president of the AAD as well as on the board of directors, and she has a special interest and expertise in acne. So we're thrilled to have you today. You. Welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Today, we're mostly going to be talking about antibiotics, probably the most systemic, probably the most common systemic treatment we have for acne. And of course, as dermatologists, we love our tetracycline. So I thought maybe we could start there. Why do we love them? Why are they so popular?
2: Well, they are popular and they really are first line for systemic therapy. And when we think about it, you know, we do know that there is a bacteria, Cutibacterium acnes, that is kind of at the center of the pathogenesis of acne. But we also know that antibiotics actually work two different ways. They have that antimicrobial effect, but they also have fairly potent anti-inflammatory effects.
1: So we really use them for both reasons. So obviously, we know that these are great anti-inflammatory agents, and we'll use it even when things are not infected per se. It's just sort of our mainstay of acne. But how about the dosing? Because there's some doses that kill bacteria, there's other doses that don't, Can you guide us a little bit with how important that is?
2: That's such an interesting question because even though we use antibiotics so commonly, we have such a lack of data on what the best dose really should be. So when we look, for instance, at minocycline, we actually have a dose ranging study that was done with the extended release minocycline. So we're lucky here because they looked at a 12 week study. This was double blind placebo control And they looked at one milligram, two milligram, and three milligrams per kilogram versus placebo. And what was really surprising was that more wasn't better. In fact, one milligram per kilogram was equivalent to or better than the higher doses, and there was less side effects. So that's why they went with the one milligram per kilogram. And with doxycycline, we don't have any really great prospective studies that tell us what the best dose is. Often people will use 100 milligrams a day. Sometimes they'll use 100 milligrams BID. What's interesting though, is we do have some small studies that actually looked at sub antimicrobial dose doxycycline. And even though these were small studies, they actually found that, as you mentioned, the anti-inflammatory properties actually worked well. And we saw a, a nice decrease in both the inflammatory and the comedonal lesions. So it's kind of interesting. I don't use generally a savvy antimicrobial dose of doxycycline. I tend to either use 100 milligrams or I'll go up to 200 milligrams a day for significantly inflamed patients, but I don't tend to use a low dose of doxy.
1: Will you do minocycline 100 milligrams twice a day? Because it seems like that minocycline study with the extended release didn't seem to support it, depending on weight, of course.
2: Yeah, you know, what's interesting about minocycline is when I was a resident, we tended to use minocycline as first line all the time. When we look at the side effect profile of the different drugs, we do find that minocycline, although it's a very safe drug, does have a side effect profile with some unique side effects. So we know that all the tetracyclines have some GI upset. They can all cause resistance to cutybacterium acnes. They're all potentially not to be used in patients age eight or under, or in a pregnant women. They can all potentially cause cerebri. But when we look at the unique side effects, we know minocycline more likely has the CNS side effects, the skin hyperpigmentation, and some of those kind of rare but more dangerous side effects like autoimmune hepatitis, drug-induced LE, serum sickness. So kind of a long answer to your question. I tend to prefer doxycycline over minocycline. And minocycline, we know the CNS side effects tend to be dose related. So generally, I stay a little bit lower minocycline. But we also have new
1: options today. Right. Just to, to spend another moment on minnow versus doxy. This was a little bit of folklore when I was in training. But I was sort of taught that minocycline might penetrate the hair follicle and sebaceous gland a little bit better. So sometimes I'll choose it for an acne or folliculitis patient, but I agree with you. I, I do like the side effect profile of doxycycline better. And of course there are newer agents Yeah. but what do you make of that? Is that folklore, the, the penetration, the hair follicle and sebaceous gland? You know,
2: I, I think overall minocycline is probably a little more efficacious for acne. Although we don't have great data that show head-to-head trials, but I do agree with you. I think it probably works a little bit better. And I have used minocycline, but, you know, you have to spend a few more minutes probably consenting the patient and really going over, you know, the headaches. If you get a headache, and you should do this with all of them, but, you know, if you get a rash or you just aren't feeling well, certainly stop the drug and let me
1: know. Mm -hmm. Okay. I wanted to spend another couple minutes on the lower dose doxycycline, because that was really interesting that there are some, there's some data for that sub-antimicrobial dosing. And some of those studies were done with 20 milligrams of doxycycline twice a day, correct? As opposed to the branded formulation? That is correct. They were, Um, especially some of the initial studies looked at that. Okay, and both of those treatment regimens should be considered sub-antimicrobial. So I know that sometimes when the branded 40 milligrams is not covered, they'll ask you to do a 50 milligram tablet, but these are not quite equivalent, correct?
2: You know, I, I think that's really a critical point because I kind of feel like you should either use an antimicrobial dose or a submicrobial dose but not somewhere in between. And I think people are often, you know, think, well, it doesn't really matter. I'll just go ahead and use 50 milligrams or I'll use, you know, 100 every few days. And, you know, we don't have to, first of all, we don't have to taper antibiotics. You can just use them and stop. They're not steroids. So there's no rebound that occurs necessarily with just stopping your antibiotics. But I don't usually like an act. In fact, I don't use the 50 milligram of doxycycline mainly because when you're using the 50 milligram, you're not staying below that minimum antimicrobial level or even the MIC. So what happens is sometimes you're killing bacteria, but most of the time you're not. And I do worry about the potential for bacterial resistance, especially maybe killing the weaker organisms. We don't have great studies on it to see what exactly happens, but at least theoretically, it's not the best idea. So either go submicrobial or go full antimicrobial, but I recommend usually not going
1: somewhere in between. Yeah. And, you know, I I was impressed with the findings of, I think you touched on it. There was the one study that compared the modified release doxy 40 milligrams to doxy 100 milligrams versus placebo and severe acne. And am I correct that the lower dose doxy did better?
2: Yeah, you know, and this is not a widely publicized study, but isn't it interesting that there was a study, and to be honest, it wasn't such a small study. You know, When we look at this particular study and it, exactly what it, what it was, exactly how you said it, it was a three-arm study. They looked at full-strength doxycycline, 100 milligrams. They looked at the modified release, 40 milligram, and they looked at placebo. And they had over 200 patients in each arm. So that's actually a really big study. It, so it's powered fairly well. And that's really what happened. They found that the modified release doxycycline worked just as well as the doxycycline 100 milligrams in the acne patients. So it's not something that we tend to think about for acne. We tend, it is FDA approved for rosacea, but if you're looking for something and you really don't wanna use the, you know, you want something that's just anti-inflammatory and not antibiotic, I think you could think
1: about it. Yeah, that's really interesting. I've tried it in a few patients, I've had mixed results, but certainly I haven't tried it in 200 patients. And that's, you know, why you need to have things powered. So I'm going to keep that in mind. Yeah. So let's touch on those, you know, patients where you might use, you know, you've been, they've used doxycycline 100 milligrams, you know, for a few months, they didn't get good results. And they don't want to go on Accutane because they're scared of Accutane. Is there anything else that can be done for them? You know,
2: yeah, before we move on to what's new, I'll tell you, I never really thought there was a major difference between the Doxy 100 milligrams and the Doxy 200 milligrams. But we actually did a study just in those patients that you're talking about. Those patients who had the kind of more severe acne that as they walk into your office, you're thinking, I got to start to get my isotretinoin paperwork (laughs) together because they really look like they're going to need more help. And in these patients, we actually used the 200 milligrams of doxycycline. And we combine that with the fixed combination of adapalene 0.3 and 2.5% benzoyl peroxide. And I was kind of, first of all, it wasn't nodulocystic acne. It was really the more superficial inflammatory acne. They were allowed to have a few nodules, but it was not that type of deep cystic acne. And what we found was, you know, a lot of these studies over 90% of the patients at the end of 12 weeks actually got control of their acne and they were using a higher dose of doxycycline. So this has kind of pushed me a little bit. When somebody comes in and they're really inflammatory, I'm gonna probably go to that. I might start out with 100 milligrams twice a day with a really potent topical. And I think it's worth a try, at least initially, although I'm still getting that paperwork together. You know, usually they have to fail some antibiotics first anyways. So I have been convinced that it's probably, you know, you're really pushing the anti-inflammatory properties a little bit higher, I think, with the higher dose. And how long did you follow the patients? Were the results sustainable? You know, and that's, that's the whole key, absolutely the key, because no, we didn't follow them for a long period of time. And you know that when you put them on the treatment, you know, you clear them up while they're on treatment, and then you've got to maintain them. You know, once you get these patients under control, you know, we've done other studies with the combination of oral antibiotics and potent topicals and shown that you can treat until you get those patients under control and in some patients if you continue a good topical you can maintain the efficacy but you got to do something versus with isotretinoin you know we can treat and potentially give them a a holiday or maybe even you know not have to treat again once we receive clearance
1: right right good okay but very exciting for our world is that we have new things. We have new things in the antibiotic toolkit, which we hadn't had in decades. So saracycline is new, correct? And can you tell us a little bit about that product?
2: Yeah, this is, we continue to evolve in our antibiotic development, just as we've evolved in in the development of other drugs. Ideally, what we want to do is we want to go from a more broad spectrum antibiotic to a more targeted. And the reason we want to do that is really because of kind of antibiotic stewardship. If we have a narrower spectrum, that means we're targeting the, the bacteria, you know, kind of in our line of fire, as opposed to getting collateral damage, because when you take any antibiotic systemically, you're going to potentially be killing bacteria in areas other than the skin, for sure. So if we can get a narrow spectrum, and that's one of the things that seracycline does, it looks like a tetracycline, it acts like a tetracycline, but it has some modifications that actually have enabled it to be more narrow spectrum. We know that it's more specific for the gram positives and not the gram negatives. It tends to not have the same impact on the gut that more broad spectrum antibiotics have. And it, it has this modification that it has actually allowed it to decrease the risk of bacteria becoming resistant to it. And we found that the mutation rate goes down dramatically with saracycline. And you might say, so why do I care? Because we care about bacterial resistance. And according to the CDC, this is one of the really major health problems globally. And resistant organisms can kill people. So we wanna be responsible, we wanna use a drug that has the narrower spectrum of activity as possible. And you know, some other interesting things about serocycline, are first of all, it has a really potent anti-inflammatory property. And we already talked about that, that that's important. It has weight-based dosing, which is also kind of nice. And when we were talking about the side effect profile, we actually did a study in animals and looked at whether or not it penetrated the blood brain barrier and we compared it to minocycline, and we found that the minocycline was penetrating, but serocycline was not. So that might account for the fact that in the clinical trials, we didn't see the CNS side effects. We didn't see the gut side effects like we see with typical tetracyclines, mainly because of the narrow spectrum of action, but not having the, the dizziness is also, I think, a benefit for a
1: tetracycline drug. Absolutely. and. You know, when I was reading through some of the materials, I was pleasantly surprised that it did get some of the more common queer positive bacteria like MRSA and a few of the others that do cause problems, even in our acne patients. So that was nice. And the side effect profile, while there were still some things, it was quite low. What were the most common side effects that people see? No drug is
2: perfect. You know, we definitely see some side effects, but when we look at it, the things that we would expect, like the GI side effects, nausea, diarrhea... Actually, not that much different from the placebo pill. Uh, Diarrhea, in fact, was even greater in the placebo than in the active, and then abdominal pain, again, also fairly low. You know, in most studies, nasopharyngitis, or the common cold, is usually the most common thing that we see, and that was up there. And again, in one of the studies, it was more common in the placebo than the active. And the things that we worry about, like photosensitivity, very, very rare, 0.2% sunburn, less than 1%. Candidiasis, which we, we certainly worry about, um, less than 2%. So it, you know, no drug has no side effects, but I think very manageable side effect profile. So it doesn't take quite as long a conversation with this particular drug
1: than with some of the other antibiotics. Which is nice. Mm-hmm. And then how about the efficacy? Is it similar to the other tetracyclines? Does it work, similar rate, effective onset?
2: One of the things I think that we carry around that's a little bit of a myth is when we think about, you know, when you put a, pers- a patient on an oral antibiotic, we always feel like, okay, we're pulling out the big guns now. We're putting you on an oral <laughs> antibiotic. And it's true, that definitely helps. But when you look at the efficacy of our traditional tetracycline antibiotics, you know, first of all, you don't see great efficacy until 12 weeks. And the efficacy is not that great. It's pretty moderate. Often, In one study that looked at combination versus antibiotic alone, the efficacy was only about 8%. Mm. With the doxycycline 100 milligrams once a day, and you look at this, you're like, oh, my goodness. So anyway, so when we look at the efficacy here as monotherapy, and again, we don't tend to use the oral antibiotics as monotherapy, but you, you know, for clinical trials, we have to look at it by itself. And actually, the efficacy was pretty good about 22% of patients got to clear, almost clear. And as you mentioned that, you know, they come in with moderate to severe disease and there was a nice delta or difference between the active drug and the placebo. So, you know, it, it does work fairly well. Are you typically reaching for this first now before others? You know, a lot of it comes down to access. But if you think about it, what ideally we want a drug that has good efficacy, we want a drug, an antibiotic that has a narrow spectrum. We want an antibiotic that has a good safety profile. So I think when you look at all of our choices, this drug is superior in each one of those aspects. In addition, we have data on the chest and back, and which makes sense, you know, if you're taking a pill, we we see that the efficacy was actually quite good, you know, up to 30% or so on the chest and the back. So it comes down to access, it comes down to, you know, are we able to get it for our
1: patients, but I I do think that it makes sense. And then, you know, this is something that we need to consider more often, any special considerations for our patients with skin of color? Does that affect your choice of therapy when you see somebody with bad inflammatory acne and they're a patient of skin of color?
2: Yeah, it does. And it's really important because You know, often when we look at our acne patients, we're looking at them and we're looking to see, okay, how is your active acne? How many bumps do you have? And when we look at the dispigmentation, which we understand is a sequelae of the acne, we often poo-poo it and say, well, you know, as long as the bumps are going down, we're doing great. We have to remember, though, and in skin of color, the dispigmentation, the post-inflammatory inflammatory hyperpigmentation often cause more devastation for the patient than even the active acne lesions. So with these patients, I feel like we have to get the acne under control as rapidly as possible. We know that often those dispigmented areas, often when you biopsy them, there's still inflammation there. So I'll continue to treat even through those lesions and, and try to have a game plan in place. I think we have to remember that when we're looking at our patients that have maybe those pink spots or those brown spots, we know with the development of atrophic scars that these erythematous and hyperpigmented lesions in some cases can go on to cause atrophic scars. So I like to use
1: the most potent anti-inflammatory medications that I can. That's such a great tip that I didn't know that. So that's gonna change the way I practice, thank you. All right. That was fantastic. Thank you so much. Um, Really learned a lot. It's so exciting to have something new in our toolbox because we see acne so much. So thank you for your expertise and those great tidbits that we got. Um, And thanks for your time.
2: Pleasure chatting with you and a really nice conversation. So thanks for having me.
0: Thank you. Thank you to Almoral for supporting this episode of Dialogues in Dermatology. We hope you've enjoyed this edition of Dialogues in Dermatology. This is Todd Schlesinger, your editor-in-chief. For more podcasts, including bonus issues, check us out online at the website of the American Academy of Dermatology or through the Dialogues in Dermatology app. You can now also sync your subscription to your favorite podcast app. New podcasts are released each week in addition to our monthly JAD podcasts, We hope you enjoy these new options for listening to dialogues and the increasing content for your listening pleasure. Thank you.